Well, good morning. Our text this morning comes from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 15. And Peter has written this letter to address those who have become complacent in their faith. As Pastor Dirk mentioned last week, many had tried to predict with no success whatsoever when Christ would return. In fact, as a result of these failed predictions, the seeds of doubt had been planted and those seeds were beginning to sprout. We read in the book of Acts about the passion and the excitement that the early Christians had for proclaiming the gospel. They were, to use a contemporary term, on fire for God. And much of this excitement was attributed to the eager anticipation of Jesus' grand return. The hour is nigh, or so they thought at least. And they lived their lives by that mantra. But slowly that fire that once burned so bright and so hot began to fade. Where was Jesus? Shouldn't he have come back by now? Was he ever coming back? Has he forgotten about us? 2,000 years and many failed predictions later, here we sit, perhaps struggling with some of those same thoughts. Where is Jesus? Shouldn't he have come back by now? Couldn't he have come back or come back now and save us from this broken world in which we live? And that brings us to our text, which again is 2 Peter 3, verses 8 through 15. Please stand for the reading of God's word. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. Will you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we are merely humans, and we cannot begin to understand your scope or your timing. As written by your servant Peter, please continue to remind us that our work here on earth remains unfinished, and that we are called to continue to seek repentance and closeness with you, our gracious Father. Open up your words to us this morning. Amen. You may be seated. 
I want to lead off this morning with a bit of a confession. Some of you who know me well already know this about me. In fact, if you've ever scheduled anything with me, this probably comes as no surprise. But I am really, really poor at keeping time. It's not that I can't uh, read a clock. In fact, I'm actually pretty confident in my ability to read clocks at this point, especially the digital ones. Uh, But for some reason, I can never seem to show up or be ready when the clock is in the position in which I had previously agreed. It's a terrible habit. And for what it's worth, I've actually gotten better as difficult as it may be to believe. But I do realize that my lack of time awareness creates problems. Because let's face it, our lives are completely reliant on the clock. It's how we know when we should be at, or more importantly, go home from work. It's how we schedule meetups and gatherings, socially distanced, of course. We've even grown to rely on the clock to tell us when we're supposed to be going to sleep at night. Especially in the Western world where we live, we are slaves to the schedule. But does God operate on our schedule? Or even by our framework of time? Not necessarily. No, he doesn't. The reality is this. We as humans cannot begin to understand God's time. And we are called by the grace of our ever-loving Father to diligently live our lives as if Christ were returning today. Because, my dear family and friends, he is indeed returning. Have you ever hosted a dinner party? If you've forgotten what those were like, imagine you invite a few friends over to have dinner at your place at 5 o'clock on a Friday night. You've volunteered to cook, and you've perfectly executed a lovely spread. You've got a nice appetizer of stuffed mushrooms to start, to be followed by delectable roasted chicken with artichoke hearts on the side, and everything is baking to absolute perfection. Five o'clock rolls around. The mushrooms come out of the oven right on time, and they are exquisite. Lovely aroma fills the house as you plate the shrooms and put the chicken and the artichokes in the oven. But there's one problem. No one has shown up. At first, you figure, they, well, they must be here any minute. Perhaps they just got stuck in traffic. But as 5.15 starts cruising toward 5.30, you begin to get apprehensive. Surely they should be here by now, you think. At 5.30, you've called everyone and gotten no reply. The chicken and the artichokes are nearly ready. The mushrooms are pretty cold by now, and you're frustrated. No longer are you asking yourself, are they almost here? Instead, you're wondering, are they coming at all? Have they forgotten about me? And by 6 o'clock, you might be in your pajamas, eating some chicken and a cold mushroom, and watching your favorite TV show on the couch, wondering where it all went wrong. This is sometimes how we feel about Jesus returning. We may have had our lives totally in order, our confessions made, and our minds and our hearts ready for his return. Yet 5 o'clock has come and gone, and he's still not here. 
We've suffered through miserable experiences here on earth. We've anticipated Jesus coming and whisking us away to heaven. And yet here we remain. Be honest, have we started asking those questions yet? Have we started asking if he's coming at all? Has Jesus forgotten about us? You see, it's these difficult, hopeless questions that Peter is addressing in his letter. People are beginning to grow impatient. Predictions have been made, and predictions have been wrong. All of them. And that fire that burns so bright and so hot is beginning to die out. Where is he? Peter is writing this letter to the common man who is discouraged, and he addresses this question of when, right here in verse 8. He says, Do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. You see, the Lord isn't running late. He's going to be right on time, as always. No, the problem isn't with the Lord. It's with us. We only understand time from a human perspective. We see the world in seconds, in minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, years. We can only see time as it fits within our human limitation of understanding, which is very limiting, by the way. But God works on a different framework altogether. You see, God hasn't randomly picked a day to return. Like everything he has ever done or ever created, his return date is perfectly calculated. Just because we don't understand his calculations does not mean that he's wrong. His plan is running right on schedule. Moreover, the Lord is patient. He will not be swayed to come ahead of schedule. Instead, he has a time picked out, and he won't return even a moment sooner. And that really is a great thing to say and to believe, especially here in America where we live fairly comfortable lives compared to others in different parts of the world. But still, even in America, doubt has a way of creeping in. How do we know he's still coming? It's been 2,000 years. <laughs> How can we be sure that the Lord is true to his word? A few weeks ago, while out preparing for our coming move, I was devastated by the news that Jeff Sandness had passed away. At Bible camp a few years ago, we had the privilege of hearing Jeff speak at the evening services. And Jeff was the youth pastor here many years ago, and some of you may remember him from his time serving here. But that week, he did a wonderful job of bringing the word to everyone at Warm Beach. His message really touched Madison and I, and and certainly many others that were there. And one evening he brought up a question that I'm sure many of us have considered at one point or another. And that question is this. When we are called home and we are asked why we should be allowed into heaven, how do we respond? And to be honest with you, his answer took me by surprise. Though he admitted that he may not have the guts to give this answer when the day came, but oh, how I hope that he did. The answer he gave was very different than any that I'd ever heard. 
Because rather than pointing out all the times that he's done the right thing or the number of times he's forgiven his neighbor or how much time he spent praying or reading the word, Jeff's answer was this. Why should you allow me into heaven? Because you promised. Because you promised. That's a very powerful answer. And better yet, it's completely sufficient. Because God has never once failed to deliver on a promise. If we look through the Old Testament, see how many times he was true to his word. One example that comes readily to mind, and it comes from the book of Genesis. This is reading from Genesis 15, 1 through 5. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless and my heir of my house. Is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and the number of stars, and number them. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. God promised Abraham that he and Sarah would give birth to a son. And I can tell you with utmost confidence up here this morning that Abraham assumed that that was going to happen well before it actually did. And his actions prove it. God's promise to Abraham was fulfilled much later than Abraham expected. Yet, God was true to his word. And throughout history, God has always been true to his word. And God will continue to always be true to his word. And his return is no exception. Even if it may come later than we expect, just like it did for Abraham. Because that's who God is. So we've now looked at when Christ will return, and that's when he sees fit. We've looked at how we can be sure Christ will return, because he promised, and all his promises are true. So our next question might be, how will Jesus return? What are we looking for? How will we know? Well, this has been a point of contention throughout history, and many have tried, and many have failed, all have failed so far to look at signs that might give Jesus return away and accurately predict his coming. In fact, you can look at almost any denomination out there and you will find a failed prediction somewhere. And thus far, all of them have been wrong. I haven't lived through most of these predicted dates, but I did live through December 21st, 2012. You guys remember that day? If that date doesn't sound familiar, let me explain. December 21st, 2012 was the day that the ancient Mayan calendar spanning over 5,000 years came to an end. And in an unfounded conjecture, many speculated that this meant that the world was to end as well. And yet, here we are. Why have so many predictions been made? And why have they all been wrong? What are we to be looking for? 
If we look at what Peter has to say, he makes it pretty clear in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. When I was in my, my late teens and early 20s, somewhere in there, um, my uncle gifted me a 1969 Mercury Cougar. And after I helped my dad tune it up and get it running, I really started cruising around Edmonds and Mount Lake Terrace in that bad boy. And let me tell you, I felt pretty dang cool. There were only two things wrong with it. The first issue was that it used a lot of gas. It used a lot of gas. And not having a steady job, I had a bit of trouble providing for that particular need because gas costs money. But the second issue was even more concerning. The radio was inconsistent. I struggled getting signal, especially down in the Edmonds Bowl. And of course, I couldn't plug my one gigabyte iPod Nano into it. And this problem required immediate attention. And so I did what any other guy my age would do. I bought a stereo deck, an amp, and a 12-inch subwoofer from my friend. And then we both set to work trying to hook everything up. A few years back, I installed a new radio in my 98 Ford. And it turns out now there's just a plug that you use just to connect all the wiring. It's really simple. It took me about five minutes. Uh, but it was a bit more of a project putting my 2010 stereo into a 1969 car. We had to cut the plugs off of both cars and the stereo. We had to trace wires. We had to connect all the wires individually. We had to peel back some of the carpet on the floorboards to hide the wires that were running all over the car. Um, and the only easy thing was the subwoofer, which we just set in the back of the trunk. Uh, just to give the nice car or the car a nice like back to front rattle as I drove. And after hours of work, we turned the key and boom, crystal clear rock music and teeth rattling bass. It was perfect. And as you can expect, I made sure that that car was safe. There's just no thrill quite like rolling through your hometown in a sweet old car blasting ACDC's Thunderstruck, just below speaker blowing volume. I took care of that car. I made sure to lock it up. I parked it, I was the guy that parked it way out in the parking lot, away from everybody else, so that nothing bad could happen to it. But, as the months and the years went by, I started getting complacent. I started you know, if it was raining, maybe I'd park a little closer to everybody else. I wasn't necessarily always consistent with locking the doors. And of course, that's when it happened. I woke up one Sunday morning, running late for church because that's who I am. And my parents informed me that someone had broken into my car and stolen the stereo. I walked out, heart pounding, to assess the situation. And one thing became clear immediately. 
It took the thief far less time to remove that stereo than it took me to put it in. And as I stared blankly at the wires strewn about the seats and the floor, I lamented. What if I had been more careful? What if I had just locked the door? If only I'd known the thief was coming. If only I'd been awake. But of course, that's the problem with thieves. They come when you don't expect them. Otherwise, they wouldn't be thieves, or they wouldn't be successful ones at least. And here Peter is stating the reality of Jesus' return. And Jesus' return plan doesn't lend itself well to predictions. Since we know that Jesus will come like a thief, we cannot, therefore, expect advance notice. There will be little in the way of signs pointing to his return. And if we don't know when, we cannot predict when Jesus will return. And so what does that mean for us? That means we must simply be ready. We must always be ready. So now we've looked at when Christ will return, how we know he's indeed coming, and how we can know when he's about to return. We won't. Therefore, we must always be ready. But now, what exactly does being ready look like? One of the first connections uh, my wife Madison and I made was our shared love of the Zac Brown Band. And the Zac Brown Band has a song called No Hurry. Here are some of the lyrics. You know, my old car needs washing, and the front yard needs a trim. And the telephone keeps ringing, and the boss man knows I know it's him. And the bills ain't going to pay themselves, no matter anyway, because I ain't in no hurry today. The final verse, though, is the one I really want to point out. And it goes like this. Heaven knows that I ain't perfect. I've raised a little cane. And I plan to raise a whole lot more before I hear those angels sing. I'm going to get right with the Lord. Or there will be hell to pay. But I ain't in no hurry today. Going to get right with the Lord. Or there will be hell to pay. But I ain't in no hurry today. Now, when we hear this, we know it's fallacy. And yeah, it is just a song, just a country song at that. But how often have we casually lived our lives like this? I admit that I have. We might have a tendency to procrastinate when it comes to seeking repentance or to changing our actions. Maybe you have a problem with alcohol, but one more beer tonight, not going to hurt anything. Sure, I should stop cussing, but I'm young and there's still plenty of time. I know that God has blessed me financially, but I'll wait till next week to give that 10%. It's this very attitude that Peter is condemning. Because there is a sense of urgency. We don't know when our time's up. We don't know when God has planned his triumphant return. So we need to address these things today. Are there sins you need to address in your life? 
Are there sins you may not even recognize in your life that need addressing? A very wise man I know prayed a prayer once that went something like this. Lord, reveal to me the sins that have separated me from you. And he said it was the beginning of one of the most difficult seasons of his life. Because there were many. And it was very humbling and very convicting. And it's certainly not a prayer to be taken lightly. But that's probably where we should, should start, allowing God to speak into our lives, addressing those shortfallings, addressing the complacency, and, through his overwhelming love, encourage us to keep striving. Striving to love him above all things. Striving to notice and eliminate any unaddressed sin in our lives. It's a good place to start. But there's more. If we go back to verse 9, we see another exhortation. Peter says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Our remaining time on earth is our chance to get right with the Lord. But what does the second half of that verse say? It says this, Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach Repentance. Fellow Christians, this is a calling that goes further than just repenting our own sins. Christ hasn't returned yet, no, but it's for a very good reason. God wants all of his children, his people, created in his image, to come home to be with him in heaven. What does that mean for us? Well, along with confessing our sins and getting right with the Lord, we are to be preaching the gospel to our lost neighbors as well. In the first chapter of Mark's gospel, we read about both Isaiah and John the Baptist prophesying Christ's coming. It's here we read John's words, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus did that while he was on earth, it's true. But the reality is, he's still doing it today. You know, Adam or another pastor or Dirk or somebody will stand up here and they'll baptize with water from this baptismal. But it is really Christ who's doing the work, baptizing with the Holy Spirit. Bringing a new Christian into God's eternal family. And he wants to see every single person on earth baptized into his family, and Christ is giving us every opportunity to both join that family ourselves and to allow God to work through us to bring others into the kingdom. As we continue on in Advent, as we eagerly anticipate the day we get to celebrate Jesus' birth over 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, we need to remain diligent. Continue to seeking the Lord in our own lives and repenting of sin while also allowing Christ to work on earth through us to save the lost. We know that Christ is coming because he promised. And we know it will be on his own time 
and we know it will be like a thief in the night. May God give us the grace to remain wide awake to live, continue to live our lives for him. During this Advent season, and for the rest of our lives here on earth, until he returns or calls us home. Amen. You pray with me. Heavenly Father, though we eagerly anticipate the day you return, may you give us the humility to repent of our own sin. We are so desperate to be close to you, Lord. So give us the strength to fight the complacency that so often seems to creep into our lives. May you also grant us the wisdom and the courage to seek those who are still lost. May we love others as we love ourselves, and may we love you above all things. Amen.